9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of uh, Deep State Radio. It's the weekly show that we call Ask the Blob. Um, uh, Of course, the blob is the name that the Obama administration once gave the foreign policy community, especially the ones that were annoying them at the time. Uh, And just like the term deep state, we've embraced it because we want to uh, own that. And also a lot of our members are are actually members of the blob and they're proud of it. Uh, Each week we, uh, on this particular episode, do something that we're, we're, we're coming to enjoy a lot, which is open up questions to our members. So, um, uh, all you have to do is, if you're in the in the in the webinar room, is go to the Q and A um, uh, icon, click on it, and post your question, and I will refer them to our guests. We are very fortunate today to have two guests: one an old friend, one new, but somebody I admire. The old friend is Natasha Bertrand. She is the White House correspondent at Politico. You may have seen her on. NBC or MSNBC. She used to be a staff writer for The Atlantic. Hi, Natasha. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks for having me. Very glad you could join us. Um, Also joining us today is Jay Rosen, who's a journalism professor at NYU. Um, And uh, he is a well-known commentator on how journalists uh, work and how they should work. And I have been a fan of reading his uh, via... um, uh, the various platforms on which you find them. Um, uh, uh, Jay's written a book called What Are Journalists For? Um, welcome, Jay. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Are you in New York City? I am. Yep. New York City. Uh, I'm in the NYU area, so I'm, uh, I, you know, I feel a certain uh, kind of uh, closeness to you and the work that you're doing. Um, the main thing that we're going to focus about here. Um, is the the way the media has been changed by the Trump era and perhaps uh, the way it is being changed uh, yet again in the, in the Biden era. Um, and and you know we'll I'll ask you a couple of questions. Let's keep the answers fairly short. We already have a bunch of questions from the audience piling in so. Uh, I want to make sure that we can get to all of them. But with with that framing question, do you think, um, and, and, and let me start with you, Natasha, do you think the Trump era has fundamentally changed the, the nature of media coverage of a president, you know, in, in, your, in your estimation? The White House press corps, just in that, you know, when Trump came in, journalists weren't used to having someone in that position lie incessantly, like constantly just, you know, go up and just ramble and, you know, just tell falsehoods left and right. And I think that the media writ large also became better at calling out those lies in print or on TV or whatever it may have been. I think that they became more discerning um, when it came to saying, look, this is, just outright false rather than 
kind of saying, you know, dancing around it, like perhaps it would have been polite to um, before before the Trump era. So in that sense, I think that, you know, journalists became a little bit more comfortable um, calling a lie a lie. Um, with regard to Biden now, it's it's difficult because we're returning to an era kind of like the Obama era where there's kind of this, you know, keeping the press, um, you know, at arm's length, obviously not as much of an adversarial relationship between Trump and the press and um, between Biden and the press as there was with Trump. But it's also tough for journalists because after four years of constant leaks and drama and, you know, just no, no sleep and just getting, you know, these emergency calls at 4am or whatever it may have been for whatever, you know, Trump did that day. I think a lot of journalists are kind of craving that again. And it's like coming down from a sugar high after the, the four years of Trump that was nonstop. Um, and, you know, that obviously, I think that it's a little bit too early to see how that's going to play out throughout this administration. But I think that's a trap. I think that journalists need to kind of avoid falling into because you know, this is a very different administration. It's it's challenging in its own ways. Um, and so kind of seeking out that, you know, that sugar high again of, of finding a, a, you know, chaos or drama in every corner is going to be tempting, especially with all of the coverage we saw of, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who was kind of like the Trump after Trump and the media kind of clung on to her as something that they could um, you know, hype and, and talk about and kind of raise her profile even more. And so I think that's something that, you know, we're going to have to reckon with moving forward. What do you think, Jay? Um, I would point to four key things that went on in this uh, period. Um, the first and the most recent one is an extraordinary thing happened in the November of 2020 after the election. And as it became clear that Trump was going to try and deny the results and overturn the results, uh, I think at that moment, people in journalism realized that they had to completely oppose this force. Um, and that realization that um, we could lose this thing, meaning American democracy, if this plot succeeds, was, I think, a a shock, but also a kind of confirmation of the building in that of trends that Natasha talked about. It was kind of like the, the apotheosis of this willingness to call a lie a lie. Uh, and in that period, news media discovered that it has to not just serve a democracy with information, but actually um, fight for it. Uh, and that's something that I have been trying to ask journalists to do for a long time, but it took these extreme events for it to actually happen. And the fact that it happened means it could happen again. And that's a very important uh, development that, uh, that at the very end of this uh, regime, if you will, uh, journalists discovered that they have to themselves kind of fight for democracy. So that's for first point, a, sec a second point is, and this is the general view I have towards Trump and the press. Um, American journalism is built on certain assumptions about how okay. candidates, office holders, presidents will behave. Trump violated all of those assumptions or norms as we learn to call them. 
Uh, and that therefore breaks the practices that rode on top of those uh, assumptions. Uh, and uh, the press corps simply isn't very good at um, recognizing broken practices and changing them on the fly you know, while the story is underway. And I think that accounts for a lot of the problems and um, ups and downs and hesitations uh, that the press had. And that's why it took years to come to this new willingness to call lies, uh, lies. Um, but even then, uh, you know, the whole notion of fact-checking as it developed in American journalism was not just to call out falsehoods, but to shame candidates and office holders into um, stopping the lies. And uh, obviously fact-checking hasn't worked that way in the, in the Trump years. A third thing I would point to is the rise of a problem that people in journalism weren't ready for, still have trouble with, which is amplifying disinformation simply by covering the news. And this became more and more of a problem, especially during COVID where just covering an event that would in the past have been by consensus newsworthy, like Trump's COVID press conferences results in misinformation or disinformation being being presented to the public, which is in a way the opposite of what journalism is supposed to be. And learning how to deal with this problem of amplifying disinformation um, has been really difficult for uh, the press. And, I, and it's a difficult problem, um, but it's it's one of the one of the key problems in in the five years of Donald Trump and American journalism. Um, and then finally, the hardest part about uh, being a journalist in the Trump era from my point of view is that before Trump, it was believed by presidents and their staffs that if you had bad press and were being criticized in the press, if you had a run of negative stories, if you had scandals uh, and unanswered questions surrounding your White House. That was a bad thing. It was bad for public confidence. It was bad uh, for your agenda. And Trump didn't see it that way. Um, being criticized, being attacked, being the subject of negative news coverage was incorporated into his political style through his method of saying to his base, you see, they attack me because they hate you. And therefore, um, ch checking uh, the power of the presidency with facts didn't work and in some ways was incorporated into the strength of the Trump movement. And I think that's a tricky problem that people in journalism never really figured out how to handle. Well, sort of picking up on that, Natasha, and, and you know, I, I don't want to go you know, too far into, you know, sort of the inner workings of political or any, any, any place else, because that's not appropriate. But, you know, essentially what this boils down to is liars are more interesting sometimes than truth tellers. Um, dysfunction is more interesting sometimes than function. Um, and, you know, we're, we're starting to see little rumblings of this now. You mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I'm thinking, you know, here's the Biden administration. They're coming in, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're passing laws. They're not talking about the predecessor. They're, they're kind of boring. 
And I've, I've noticed in the press that they're desperately, you know, not everybody, but, but, but I see people desperately trying to fight that. And I'm waiting for the story that says, you know, major turns on champ, you know, and, and that, that we, we see the rift between the Biden dogs as a, you know, as a way of, you know, getting any kind of attention. But it, but it worries me in one sense. The presidency has traditionally been the bully pulpit. But if lies are more powerful than, you know, doing the job right or more interesting to journalists, then Donald Trump can continue to occupy the bullshit pulpit. You know, he can, you know, he can continue to get attention by being a dysfunctional liar and, and, and all of a sudden have a bigger role than an ex-president would have and minimize the role of the guy who's sort of grinding along doing the job the right way. Does that worry you? And, and how, do you, how, do, how does a journalist deal with that? Well, this is, this is a kind of battle um, that has been going on over the last four years between the people who say, well, he's the president, anything he says is newsworthy, and others who say, no, he's an exception to that rule, right? And it's, it's doing the American public a disservice if you're giving him this platform. And I think towards the end, there was more of a balance where the networks wouldn't take his press conferences live or they wouldn't take his you know, remarks live and they would fact check them in the middle of it. But yeah, we never quite worked out that tension um, between kind of wanting to bring audiences that drama, which of course created even more audience and staying true to the central tenet of journalism, which is, you know, just bring truth to the people. Um, so I think, you know, as we move forward, Trump is going to continue to get a platform. I mean, yesterday, was it yesterday? This week, there was, you know, a, there were a lot of questions devoted to well, is this White House going to respond to what he says at CPAC? Um, you know, and it's like, he hasn't even spoken at CPAC yet. We don't even know what he's going to say. Um, but it's like this constant kind of trying to go this White House into responding to Trump in order to keep up that drama. Um, and therefore you keep Trump in the news. And it's just this kind of self, this self-perpetuating cycle. Um, we saw it during the impeachment saga too, kind of reporters trying to go this White House into saying, into commenting on the impeachment, keeping Trump in the news, commenting on it. And it's, you know, like I said, it's kind of like this sugar high that we're just coming down off of. And we need to try to figure out what to do because in four years, you know, everyone's going to act shocked again when Trump is the presumptive, you know, Republican nominee. And we're seeing him come back you know, to the forefront because we've been giving him a platform yet again for four years, having learned nothing. Um, so yeah, it does worry me. Um, there are very short memories um, in the press corps and in DC in particular. And so I do think that a lot of the same mistakes are going to be repeated, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah before I'm, I'll turn to the audience questions next. So if you've got one, put it in the feed. We're, we're touching on some of the things they've talked about, but Jay, I wanna pick up on the same question. You know, Natasha wrote a good story this week on the process by which the Biden administration is going to come to <clears throat> penalties and sanctions on Russia. She wrote a good story this week on uh, de-emphasizing the Middle East. Um, uh, there are a lot of good stories that are being written about this stuff. Um, and, and yet, I, you know, I, I see this sort of lean 
particularly in TV and, you know, sort of social media towards Trump's going to be at CPAC, you know, <laughs> and there's this, there's this kind of this, this slavering towards, okay, maybe we're going to get a little crazy again. And, 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 and it's hard to comp comprehend, you know, whether or not a sanction is going to work. And it's hard to comprehend whether 2,500 versus 2000 people in Afghanistan, you know, all that other stuff, it's, it's kind of, kind of difficult to take in, but having a lunatic on the television is easy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, do, 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 do you worry that this signals a shift that the GOP, that Trump, part of the reason they're, that they're still in this dysfunctional marriage is because it works? Well, in graduate school, I studied with Neil Postman who wrote the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. So I take seriously the uh, replacement of political logic with entertainment logic and that it happens and Trump is a great example of that. And it, it is gonna continue to happen. And, and you see it sometimes with questions like the ones Natasha isolated for us. So I do, I do worry about that. And I, I think we already know enough about the American press to know that a simple measure like we should have really thought through guidelines about when we decide something Trump said is news and, and, and kind of like think it through, create a high bar, um, make sure you know what you're doing when you take his latest um, outrageous comment and turn it into news. Even something as simple as that, let's create guidelines for when we turn Donald Trump into news is kind of beyond this institution. They don't do that. They would just rather wing it and let these very well-known tendencies play themselves out in their, in their own behavior. So I worry about that, yes. But I worry even more about something that I think is actually bigger than Trump and, um, and more urgent in our politics right now. And this, this is the way I would put it. And I know a lot of people would argue with this formulation, but we have two major political parties and one of them is anti-democratic. And it is trying to win by uh, making the electorate smaller and by making it impossible to tell what this party stands for. And so there is nothing in the playbook of political journalism about how to deal with a situation as asymmetric as that. Two major parties, one of them's anti-democratic. What do we do about that? How does it change our coverage routines? Um, how do we redeploy our resources? These are like massive questions of practice that I think the course of the Republican party is forcing on the political press. And they're just, they're just not, not there in the, in the day-to-day -day of the press's work. So I'm, I'm worried about the direction of the Republican party and how that intersects with uh, routine practices and premises in the press corps. Okay, so now I'm going to turn to the questions that we've got from the audience. They are kind of all over the place, uh, and I'm just going to fire them off to you in in roughly the order that I'm that I'm going to get them, and I'll just go one for each of you um, along the way. And if you can keep your answers fairly short, we'll get through all the questions. Um, uh, Natasha, let me start with you. It says here, please share anything you feel comfortable with on the topic of finding and working with anonymous sources. Um, I cast this question so widely because I know journalists usually do not like talking about it, but what are the guidelines you work with in that regard? In terms of when to grant anonymity, 
to sources? Is that kind of the question? Yeah, yeah. And your level of comfort of, of working with sources that won't provide their name. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a good question. Um, this is something that's very misunderstood by the public, I think. And I, I think actually it would be a benefit to journalists and to audiences and readers to make this a more transparent process. Um, we don't grant anonymity to people who, how do I put this, who are, who are just going to kind of bash other people indiscriminately and have no real value um, in, in what they're saying. So we try to be very selective about who we grant anonymity to in terms of, is this person, is this person someone who has actual valuable information that would add to the story in a meaningful way that we can't use if we use their, if we insist on using their name. Um, it's a, the bar is different, I think, for each organization. Um, at Politico, it's high. Um, it's, we're in political journalism, obviously, and, you know, especially in my area, which is foreign policy in the intel community, it's very, it's kind of rare, actually, to get people who are willing to put their name to something, um, especially when you're talking about, you know, internal, you know, discussions at the CIA or things like that. So it's, it's tough, but that doesn't necessarily mean when people say, when people see like, you know, um, the source said, or this person said that they shouldn't trust it. I mean, there is a person behind that anonymity. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people say, oh, these sources are made up. Trump was like a very, you know, he, he said that all the time. And, but that's not the case. I mean, and at least in reputable news organizations, when you have an anonymous source, um, that person does exist. Um, and typically they are giving information that's, that's valuable and couldn't be obtained otherwise. Okay, very, very helpful. This is a, a little bit out there, Jay, but I'm just gonna go through it. And by the way, I'd like to point out to those of you who are posing questions, that it's easier if you pose the question at the icon at the bottom of the screen that says Q and A, as opposed to the one that says chat, because I'm looking where it says Q and A and not where it says chat. Um, uh, Jay, um, again, off topic, but sort of on the news, give an opinion on the current debate that's going on regarding Slate suspending Mike Pesca, who is the host of The Gist, who was suspended because in a Slack discussion, he defended the use of the N-word in some context. Well, Mike Pesca is somebody who has regularly uh, attacked and criticized me, um, despite the fact that I have no engagement or relationship with him. Um, so maybe I'm not the best person to answer that question, but I understand from the reporting around it that according to editors at Slate, it's not just about this one thing he said in a Slack discussion. It's actually about many other things, which I'm not privy to. So I'm just going to leave it there. Um, fine. It is, it is far afield. Um, let me give you this question, Natasha. Um, the, the question itself says, does the press corps understand what the end result is for press freedom if the anti-democratic party ends up winning power and ending democracy? Um, I, 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 I'm going to comment a bit or, or, or frame it a bit that, you know, most of the journalists I know understand that. The question is, what do you do about it? Or is there anything you can do about it? I mean, is this just one of those things where professionally 
you've got to leave that to the people and report the facts. I mean, I think we all have an individual and collective responsibility in the press to make sure that doesn't happen, right? I mean, I think there, in, in the choices you make about your news coverage, you are, you know, moving in one direction or another. I think that goes back to our, the beginning of our conversation about giving a platform to people who are anti-democratic, who lie constantly. They're, they're, it's not just a matter of reporting what's happening. It's also a matter of thinking about what issues are actually important and that are in the public interest to know and that are factual and making sure that you include all of the, you know, relevant, you know, fact checking in the story, telling people what is and isn't true. I mean, I, I don't think that the press is kind of removed from this entire conversation. Um, and we do understand it. And I think going back to what Jay said earlier about the insurrection and the November election being this pivotal moment for the press is true because at that moment, I think the press realized that this was a severe threat to the future of our democracy. And of course, in that sense, the future of a free press and journalism in America and the first amendment. So I, I think, you know, we do, we do understand it. We are falling back into old habits in many ways. Um, but, you know, based on our past experience over the last four years, I think there's a broader general, general awareness of what we can and can't do to contribute to a more, you know, robust democracy in the future. Okay. Hey, David, can I add something on that? Sure. Uh, Jake Tapper at CNN is um, very straightforward sometimes in, in saying that he is and their, his program will be, and CNN will be pro-truth. That's the way he puts it. We are pro-truth. We, we have a bias. We're pro-truth. I think that is the opening for the American press to be much stronger in asserting that it is not only pro-truth, which almost all pro professional journalists would say, but also pro-democracy. We are pro-voting. We are um, pro of democratic institutions. And we will in fact come to the defense of these things and we don't apologize for it. And if you wanna know what our agenda is, it's that. I think there's a much stronger sort of pro-democracy stance that we could expect of journalists and that it'd be good for them to take. And we're getting there, we're getting to that point. But as Natasha said, there are a lot of bad habits that are easy to fall back into. Okay, so Natasha, one of the questions was very, very specific. It was, why does the media let Biden off the hook for his refusal to fire and investigate Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, who's going to appear before uh, Congress today? Um, and, and of course, he can't actually fire him because the way the structure of the, the Postal Service works, but it gets to a bigger question, um, which is, which I hear periodically, which is, is the media going too easy on Biden? Are they taking it easy on old Joe? Or when are they going to challenge him? Do, do, do you, I mean, do you, do you get a sense that there, you know, people are leaning one way or another? Do you get a sense that we're still in the media's honeymoon with Biden? It's, it's hard to, to talk about the media as kind of this one monolithic entity. Um, I right. think that there are certain outlets that are friendlier to certain administrations than others. 
Um, I could name a few that are probably a bit friendlier to this administration, um, uh, but I won't, I won't list them. But I think there are certain outlets and reporters that have done a really good job pressing this administration on, on the issues. Um, yesterday, there was a pretty robust back and forth um, about the, the administration's policy towards children in migrant facilities. And of course it came from Fox News, but it was an interesting exchange. And it now is, you know, kind of leading the Washington Post is, you know, this, the, this, the, the question of whether the Biden administration is doing enough to unravel the immigration policies of the Trump era, I think that's top of mind for a lot of journalists. And um, there's been a lot of reporting on, you know, um, COVID-19, internal tensions between the president and his uh, uh, pandemic team. Um, I think it's just harder because this White House is not leaky. It's very disciplined. Um, and I think to the extent that you can challenge Jen Psaki, the press secretary in these briefings, that's helpful. Um, if you can get it in other ways, you know, that that's helpful as well, but it's, it's just harder. And I think it's a little bit early, but I do think, you know, certain people have been, have been pressing this administration. I, I there are certain segments obviously of, of the democratic party that want to see Biden do more on a lot of issues. And I think, the left is also very unhappy with some of the things that he's been doing that aren't that don't go far enough. Um, you know, his kind of discussion about the $15 minimum wage, et cetera. But writ large, I think we're off to a fairly kind of normal start with regard to press administration and relations in that sense, in terms of how adversarial it is or not. Well, Jay, you know, it raises a question, which is sort of, can we go back to quote, <coughs> normal. Uh, Biden is seeking to de-emphasize social media, it seems, as not being controversial. And that's obviously a change from Trump. Uh, I've, I've run a media organization. I write, you know, stuff every week. We I run a tiny, tiny media organization now. And I know that what tends to drive revenue and, and growth is clicks. Um, and if uh, Biden doesn't use the things that drive the clicks. The stuff that he's trying to promote is not going to get out there. That's not quite the same as what you were talking about earlier in terms of entertainment, because what drives clicks is being one, whatever is the big story and, and tapping into emotion. So that's my question. That That's my question for you is, can you go back to normal? And is that going to actually damage the ability uh, to deliver political message. Well, I'm guided in this by uh, ancient distinction that C. Wright Mills, the mid-century sociologist, used to make between troubles and issues. And troubles are the things that are actively worrying people in their daily lives, the things they might talk about over the kitchen table that affect them in their experience. And issues are what the political system creates to um, create coalitions, to win elections, to um, get tactical victories. Uh, and his point in drawing this distinction was that when troubles don't connect to issues and when issues don't speak to troubles, we have a kind of a crisis of democracy. So this is a, uh, a way of getting to your question. I think there is a, a huge challenge here for the Biden team 
um, for the government that he's appointed, which is to find the place where the issues they want to highlight really do speak to people's troubles in an emotional and real way. And when they find the, those intersections, they have to have a very smart uh, strategy for that. And I think if they just concentrate on the priorities that they have as if um, that itself will shine through, the lesson that we're gradually learning, not just from the Trump years, but from the, the changing media environment we're in is, is that it won't. Things that just because they're important, they won't shine through, they won't come through in news coverage, they won't get through to the public. That, but that's a, that's a comms, to use the Washington abbreviation, that's the comms question for the, um, for the uh, Biden government. Um, it's not my profession, but that's their challenge. Okay. So I'm going to ask you each one more question because we're, we're, we're running out of time here. Natasha, the, the, the question is, I understand the journalists now have to market themselves considering economics. I, I like to follow you know, journalists on various media, MSNBC, uh, CNN, podcasts, so forth. But do you think it's actually detrimental? Do you think the role that journalists now have to sort of sell their stories to, you know, you, you write it, but then you've got to be out there on MSNBC. You got to be out there on CNN. You got to be out there wherever you go on Fox, if that's the side of the aisle that you work um, is, 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 a, is a problem that the journalists are becoming more, the brand is a problem or is that just a moot question? And this is just the way it is. You know, I think, I think like everything else, it has its benefits and its drawbacks. I think one of the big benefits of social media and having your own platform is that it really, I mean, particularly with people of color, it really helps elevate their work and, and their visibility in a way perhaps that in news organizations, they're, they're not able to um, for various reasons. I mean, we see a lot of, you know, institutional kind of you know, oppressive uh, practices being exposed now in traditional media organizations um, and people of color coming out and speaking about those experiences on their social media platforms. Um, and so I think in that sense, it's also kind of a way of holding the mainstream media, if we're going to, if we're going to use that term, um, more accountable. Um, but I think, you know, it, it can also have its drawbacks, like I said, uh, where, you know, sometimes the individual reporter can become the story in a way that maybe the, the outlet they work for does not want them to be. Um, they can, uh, you know, it, it's easy to get things wrong on social media, which is very fast moving. And that undermines credibility in the press writ large, unfortunately, um, because people are increasingly following individual reporters rather than, you know, broad news organizations. So, I think that overall, though, it's a very positive thing that journalists and writers can have their own platform and their own brands because it just, um, you know, it just add, it's just more voices. And I think that's always a good thing. Um, okay. Picking up on a question of yours, um, uh, Jay, uh, it says here, since the GOP has out it's outed itself as anti-democracy, how can the press defend itself against the charge of not of being not just pro-democracy as a small d, but being pro-democrat. In other words, if one group is pro-lie or, or you know, anti-science or anti-history or anti-democratic, 
and you you cover it by saying, but you know, but by saying that's what it is, you appear to be playing to the other group. This gets us into this false and incredibly frustrating issue of balance, mm-hmm. where there is this sense of some editors where we've got to, you know, we have to have both sides. But if one side is lying mm-hmm. or promoting a crime, we don't, right? I mean, the objective is the truth. It's not balance. What's your view? Well, in saying that I think the press should learn how to become more aggressively pro-truth, pro-democracy, pro-voting, pro-democratic institutions, I'm trying to suggest in a, a standard that exists independent of the parties. And so if you are um, pro-voting, uh, yeah, it requires you to recognize that the, the Republican Party has now gone down the road of making it harder to vote. It is a counter-majoritarian party now. That is the choice it made. And that has to be highlighted repeatedly. But that doesn't mean that the Democrats have been effective at opposing that. Uh, Maybe they are complacent. Uh, Maybe they need hard questions about what they're going to do in reply. Um, And it's it's the same thing with being pro-truth. You know, Democrats will shade the truth on matters that they see an advantage to themselves in. And that has to be called out, which isn't both sides. It's the application of an impersonal or sort of like third party standard. Um, and so if if you take a, a, a rabidly hyper polarized view of politics in which being a critic of the Republican Party for for its counter-majoritarian self automatically means that you are then a fan of the Democratic Party and trying to boost its fortunes. If you think that way, then there's no solution. But I don't think that way. I think there are standards that can be held across both parties. And there is a way to talk about reality without um, either false balance on the one hand or becoming a booster of one party's fortunes on the other. I don't think it's super complicated thing. In in normal life, we would know how to do that. It's only in the hyper-polarized world of politics that we see this is like this impossible uh, problem in logic. It's not an impossible problem in logic. It can be done. Then it was done um, earlier this year, as we said earlier in this uh, show. Right. Although we still get producers and editors saying, oh, no, we have to allow them to talk about the big lie because that's yeah, fair. That's right. right. But and but it's not fair. It's, that's it's a, a big lie. issue in, in Washington, actually. It's it's I'm I'm sure Natasha's following this, but it is slowly becoming an issue uh, in, on the Sunday shows, for example, is should you invite onto your program people you know are going to distribute the big lie? It's it used to be something that people like myself talk about on Twitter. And now it's actually creeping to the center of Washington. Okay, let me ask Natasha. Typically, and I've never been at a Q&A where this is not the question. You always throw in one last question and you say you only have 30 seconds and it really <laughs> takes 30 minutes to answer the question. Um, but, but one of the questions bumped into something and it, this is just, I'm just curious, right? It's sort of coming on to the end of February. We're coming on, you know, we've been in this administration now a month. There are a lot of us sort of thought that what was going to happen is Biden was going to get there. People were going to open up the drawers and they were going to find 
you know, weapons or drugs or, you know, you know, horrible things that the Trump administration had done or, you know, they were going to open the safe and find files that they had classified illegally. And all of a sudden you'd hear a lot of whistles go off and people go, look what they did. And we haven't seen any of that. Where, when's that going to happen? Well, there are restrictions, um, unfortunately, on what the new administration can disclose publicly about their predecessor. A lot of the stuff that we would love to see from the Trump era and something I would love to see, for example, are his letters to Kim Jong-un. Um, they have been placed in the National Archives. And there are weird kind of rules around what this administration can get from the archives, with or without Trump's permission. And there are also rules about when that information can be declassified and released to the public, which is typically it's subject to the Freedom of Information Act after five years. And then after 12 years, it's kind of fair game for everyone. Um, so I think if Biden wanted to get something from the archives, legal experts say he could do that. He could overrule Trump's uh, you know, reluctance to release that. And if he really wanted to, he could, if it was classified, he could declassify it and he could release it. Based on Biden's extreme reluctance up till now to talk about anything related to Donald Trump, I don't think that's going to happen. He's not trying to settle scores, um, it seems. And he has said that he's going to kind of let his Justice Department do the talking on, on certain criminal issues. So unfortunately, I, I think that, you know, short of digging, the journalists are, are doing, you know, trying to get access to these materials and, and information about what he did, like offering a ride to Kim Jong-un on Air Force One, which recently came out. And um, it's going to be a while till we see everything. It's very frustrating, but we're going to rely on you to go and get us what we need uh, when you can. Uh, very grateful to you uh, for joining us. Very grateful to you, Jay. Very grateful to the folks in the audience who posed the questions um, of the shows that we do each week. I like this one especially because it really allows us to bring our Deep State Radio members uh, into the conversation. And we hope that all of you who are Deep State Radio members will join us for these in the weeks ahead. Next week, we have a special conversation in this slot. It is a conversation with one of our regulars for the past many, many years, Rosa Brooks, who has a new book out called Tangled Up in Blue. Rosa, as you know, although she's a national security specialist and a professor at Georgetown Law, uh, actually signed up, became a cop, an associate cop, gun-carrying, badge-carrying cop in New York, in Washington, D.C., uh, for the past few years and has written a book about policing in America. It's come out at a remarkable time. She's a wow. brilliant woman, and you can go and join that show uh, next week and pose questions to her. If you're a member, you want to be a member, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and become a member, which is cheaper than like, I don't know, a latte a month or something like that. So we're worth a latte a month, I hope you think. Anyway, we've got a lot of other things coming up. The next show in our feed, it's, we're also going to do today, is with Congressman Jim Himes, one of the smartest folks I know in the Congress. So uh, join us for that uh, and future episodes. Um, uh, and in the meantime, uh, stay healthy, everybody. And thanks again, Jay. Thanks again, Natasha. <laughs>